Uh, turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, if you're using one of the hardback Bibles from out front, you should find it on page 980. Philippians chapter 1, we'll look this morning at just the first two verses of uh, this letter. Uh, it's our practice when we read God's Word together to stand, and so let me ask if you're able to do that now. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, grow us, use this, your word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, There was a time when uh, in school we would learn how to write letters. Uh, I don't know if anybody does that anymore. I'm not even sure if anybody knows what a letter is anymore. Uh, But but there was a time when you learned how to write letters and, and you were given this sort of format and and this is how you write it, this is how you start it, and this is where you put the, the, the address, the person you're sending it to, the recipient, and this is where you, you sign your name. One thing that email has gotten better, maybe this is the only thing, well, speed, and then the fact that with email, you, you know the recipient, I mean, you know the sender of the letter, of the email, before you actually read the email. You're told at the beginning who sent you this email. Because that's not how we write letters, right? I mean, you start with dear so-and-so, and, and you have to read the entire thing before you finally find it. Of course, you, you always skip ahead or you look at the return address. But you, you always have to look and see who it's from. You have to look at the bottom of the letter, see who sent it, and then go back up and read the letter. Well, perhaps... Email has, has returned us to ancient Roman Greek culture because that's the proper format. You'll notice over and over and over again in Scripture, letters begin with not the audience, but with the writer, with the person, the author, the one who's written the letter. Paul, of course, would have known that format. He would have known that um, that that's the proper way to write letters, and, and we probably take that for granted because he wrote so much of the New Testament. We, we see over and over and over again his letters, almost every one of them begins with the word Paul because he's the author and he's sending them to some audience, some church, somewhere. Paul was Jewish, yes. Raised and trained Jewish, yes. But, but that name, that Jewish name was Saul. And he, his name, he's known as Paul uh, from Acts 13 onward. His Greek name, he was, he was from a, a city, from Tarsus. He was a, a Roman colony. He was by birth, by right, a Roman citizen. He had the privilege of being both Roman and Jewish, of 
freedom to move about in Roman, uh, in the Roman Empire, and yet the the privilege of having been raised and trained in the Scriptures. Paul writes this letter. Paul wrote the letter to the church in Philippi. Now, some of you are saying, but wait, hang on. He had help because right off the bat, not only does it start with Paul, but it says Paul and Timothy. So clearly, Timothy was there with him. Paul is in prison in Rome, most likely, uh, writing this letter. And Timothy is there ministering to him, caring for him. But Timothy would not be there long. But notice verse 3. We didn't read verse 3, but look at verse 3 with me for just a second. Notice what it says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. That's, That's a singular pronoun. I, not we. So it begins Paul and Timothy, but yet he writes I, not we. Or look ahead to chapter 2 and verse 9. Uh, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Clearly, Timothy is not in, in prison. He's, he's free to move about. He's there ministering to Paul, but he's not technically a prisoner with Paul. Verse 20, chapter 2. For I have no one like him who will who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. You you may remember from last week in Acts 16, Timothy was part of the church planting team. There was actually four of them in this church planting team that started the church that grew the core group at this church plant that would become First Presbyterian Church in Philippi. So they knew Timothy. Timothy knew them. But you notice in chapter 2 that in 19 and 20, he's Paul's writing in singular and about Timothy. Parents, do you ever, you ever embarrass your kids by talking about them to each other as though they aren't in the room. You know, you talk about things they need to work on. You talk about things they need to improve. Kids, some of you are actually looking at your parents right now like, my parents are totally guilty of this. And, and in, in all likelihood, kids, what you say is this. Dad, I'm right here. I'm in the room. Talk to me. You almost wonder if Timothy kind of is is sitting there as Paul's, you know, re, re, um, uh, dictating this letter. We know that Paul used a secretary. Perhaps Timothy was the secretary. I mean, you can almost hear Timothy going, "Paul, I'm right here." As as Paul talks to the Philippians about Timothy in the third person, as though he were some foreign person off somewhere that was coming from somewhere else. You can almost hear him, Paul, I'm, I'm right here. I'm, I'm standing right here. I'm, I'm writing down what you wrote. Or I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm hearing every word of this. Stop. Paul is the author of the letter. 
to the church in Philippi. Timothy is with him. Timothy is there taking care of him. But Paul is the the primary author of the letter. He does hope to send Timothy, his son, in the faith to who's ministering to him now there to minister to the church in Philippi. But notice too, the letter isn't just written by Paul, it's written by slaves. We don't like that word. Rightly so, mind you. That word offends our ears because of its, because of its practice and history in our culture and and in our country, and when we hear the word slave, all kinds of things sort of begin to, to, to grow inside of us. Heat and anger of various kinds kind of begin to, to, to well up inside of us. And I think it's rightly so that we get annoyed and frustrated by the use of that word. It communicates so many things to us that that one who should be free isn't free, and, and in all likelihood has a, has a difficult, oppressive master. But notice, Timothy and Paul are not at all afraid to call themselves servants of Christ. They're not at all hesitant to call themselves slaves of Christ. Yes, it's the same word. And, and probably if, if, if our country didn't have the experience that it had, we probably ought to put the word slave there in verse 1. We bemoan the loss of someone's freedom. We, we think as a, as a person, a human, who should be free to live their lives is now not free because they are someone's property. They're someone's servant. They're someone's Slave, they belong to someone else. Yes, servants are under authority and control of, of someone else. Yes, a, a slave is subject to his master's will. A, a slave is bound to do what his master says to do and carry out his master's instructions. What we want is, is the last stanza, the last phrase of William Henley's poem Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That's what we want. That's the way we think it should be. We think we should be in charge and have all total and complete freedom. Paul says, Paul and Timothy are writing, we're writing this letter. Yes, I'm writing this letter. Timothy's here with me. We're servants. We're slaves. We belong to someone else. Paul gladly admits that he could never say that he's the captain of his own soul. Paul finds joy in the fact that he cannot say, I'm the master of my fate. I belong to to someone else. Paul will, will frequently use this idea of being a servant of Christ and, and never says it in a negative way at all. But that's in part because one of the major differences between 
Paul's statement here and the American experience with slavery has to do not with just with slavery itself, but with the master himself. Immediately, you picture difficult, oppressive, beating, whipping servants and slaves. You picture people using other human beings as really just a a drill or a screwdriver or a hammer, just a, a tool in their tool shed to use for their own good and for their own advancement, their own glory. We think of masters who have no concern for the well-being of their slaves. But Paul and Timothy aren't servants of that kind of a master. Did you notice Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of a Redeemer. Servants of the promised Messiah. Servants of the One who, by His Word and Spirit, has created all that is. And though we rebelled against Him as King and Ruler and Creator, He still, in all grace and humility, seeks our Redemption. Every other master will exploit their slaves for their own advancement, for their own selfish ambition. Not Jesus. Being a servant of Christ is not losing freedom, but gaining it. Being a servant of Christ isn't losing your freedom, it's actually gaining yet greater freedom because it's only in Christ that I can be free from sin. It's only in Christ that I can be free from the the penalty of sin that I deserve as a fallen, broken, sinful human being. It's only in service of Christ that, that we can be freed from the power of sin and it's only in the service of Christ that we anticipate a day when we will be freed even from the very presence of sin in our lives. Do you remember the core group? Last week in Acts 16, we saw the the first three converts in Philippi that became the core group of First Presbyterian Church in Philippi. It's now been 10, 12 years later, maybe 15 years later that Paul writes this later. That's, that writes this letter. Do you remember the second convert? Do you remember the second member of that core group that became this church plant? It was a slave girl. It was a girl who had been possessed by a demon and made her masters all kinds of money. Because she would tell people's fortune, and people would would pay her master for the right to have this guy's servant girl tell their fortune. Paul finally says, I've had enough of this. Demon, out. In the name of Christ. Immediately. Her masters had no more use for her. She was only useful to them as long as she would make them money. 
She was only a benefit to them as long as she would, would advance their own selfish ambition. That's not the kind of master Jesus is. How would it be if every time you and I sinned, Jesus said, you're no more used to me? How would it be if every single sinful thought that crossed your mind in a given day, Jesus looked at you and said, I have no more use for you. You're now seeking your own glory and not mine. I'm done with you. That's not the way Jesus treats us. That's not the way Jesus treats His people. That's the hope of covenant promises. That's the hope of applying covenant signs to children as we did just a few minutes ago. We're looking to one who is faithful precisely because we aren't. Precisely because we are faithless. That girl might actually be sitting in the congregation the day this letter is read to the church in Philippi. She hears Paul say, I'm a servant of Christ. And she says, I know exactly what servanthood is. Oh, that Christ would be my master and not those men. Not those wicked, oppressive, selfish men. You know, there are other times, other letters that Paul writes, he doesn't use the servant word, he instead will claim his apostleship. You know, he is an apostle of Christ. He's the, the sort of the lately born apostle, if you will. And there are times when he writes letters and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He doesn't use that here. Instead, he chooses to claim servanthood to Christ. Why would he use that in this letter? What's the benefit of using that word here and not using apostle? Well, we're going to find in, Lord willing, in chapters 2 and 4, there is a struggle in the church. There's rivalry, there's selfish ambition, and Paul needs to address those things. And those rivalries are threatening the unity of the church in Philippi. If anybody had the right to claim authority, it's Paul. If anybody had the right to come in and say, I'm an apostle, now do what I say to do. I'm an apostle, I will fix this, you will just listen to me. Paul had every right to do that. But he models the very humility that the church needs. He doesn't come in and claim his apostleship. He comes in and says, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm subject to another master, just as we all are. Oh, that we might live for that master. He would rather take the role of a servant for the good of the church in Philippi. The letter is written by Paul along with Timothy. The letter is written by slaves. But you also need to see the audience, the, the ones to whom 
Paul writes. We see in verse 1, that second half of verse 1, the letter is written to saints. If you come from a Catholic background, if you grew up in parts of Louisiana, if you come from a a Catholic background, that word means something completely different. It means someone who has been verified by the church to have met certain criteria and therefore qualifies to be called a saint and can therefore leave purgatory and go straight to heaven. Uh, in, In April of 2014, Pope John Paul II was canonized, was beatified, uh, became a saint through a, a service of the church in Rome. It took them uh, roughly, it took them nine years uh, to decide that Pope John Paul II was, could be called a saint. If you use that term, whenever you use the word saint, you're talking about one of two people. You're talking about your grandmother. I've never, ever, ever heard anybody call their grandfather a saint. I have heard numerous people talk, speak of their grandmother. Oh, she was such a saint. You're either, if you use the word saint, you're probably talking about your grandmother or the wife of the really boneheaded guy. Because she's such a saint for putting up with him. Okay, we're all boneheaded, but... This guy's especially so, right? She's such a saint for being able to put up with him, for being able to live with him for all these years. We reserve that word for special people. In the Catholic Church, it's for people who qualify, who meet these various criteria, including, by the way, performing a certain number of miracles. For us, it's the the super hyper-godly For Paul, it's every Christian in Philippi. It's every professing believer at first pres in Philippi. Paul's writing this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. There's not a special class of citizens. There's not a a special class of Christian that therefore qualifies as saints. It's any and all whose hope is in Christ and in Him alone for their salvation, we are called saints. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've seen my life. Worse yet, I've seen my thoughts. They ain't saintly. Let me assure you, there's nothing saintly about them. Again, there's the phrase that matters. Just as Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus, and that's the key, so too the saints are saints only because they are in Christ Jesus. Only because they're united to Him in faith. It's not because of their goodness or their merit or their qualification or their spouse that they're strong enough to put up with or whatever the case may be. Their hope and trust is in Christ and in Christ alone. They're, they're holified, they're sanctified, they're sanctified. That's where we get that word, by the way. These are 
Greek people, by the way. I mean, this is, this is in Macedonia. And, and as you recall, there was no synagogue there, which means they couldn't find ten devout Jewish men. That's the standard. If you want to form a synagogue, all you got to have is ten Jewish men in your city. And there you go. You can form a synagogue. They weren't in Philippi. Paul's writing of Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ and can be rightly called saints. All the believers at this church qualify to be called saints. But he also distinguishes the overseers and deacons. He's writing the letter to all the saints, but also to the elders and deacons. You laugh sometimes, although you're doing it less and less the more I say it. You laugh when I say things like First Presbyterian Church in Philippi. I'm really not actually joking. I mean, I'm not trying to be smart, but I'm not joking either because Paul writes to elders and deacons. A church that has elders is Presbyterian. I mean, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. That sure sounds a lot like Presbyterian. That's where we get the word. The word he uses here is episkopos, which is, sounds like episcopal. It's oversee. The office is elder. Their function is oversight. He's writing to all the saints who are all the church members at First Pres in Philippi, but he's also writing to the church officers. He's writing particularly to the elders and deacons. He doesn't do this in any other letter. No other letter does he, does he distinguish the church officers only here. For the congregation, it reminds them that Remember, there's a power struggle. There's selfish ambition going on. There's vain conceit. There's, there's one-upmanship one going on in the church. For the congregation, it reminds everyone that we're all under authority. That we're all under authority somewhere or another. We have elders and deacons over us. Paul reminds the, the church members that there's a, a structure to the church. And that we as a church under that structure are under authority and accountability for our good. But he also reminds the officers themselves that they too should model humility and service for the church. Paul writes to all the saints in Christ Jesus, together with their elders and their deacons, the church officers there in Philippi. You know, that, that, that says something to us, even at Grace Covenant. As we work towards the process of electing our own elders and deacons, uh, yes, that's delayed a bit, but we're still aiming that way, we're still heading that way, it reminds us that those of us who would seek that office, who would seek the office of elder or deacon, must first and foremost seek the honor and glory of Christ. That even as elders and deacons, they too are subject to the rule and reign of Christ in their lives. We rule and govern and serve as Christ commands us. We see the author's 
of the letter. We see the audience of the letter very briefly. Let me just point you to the aim of the letter. And you can ignore the two little subpoints in your outline. Paul writes in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from God's grace, we have no peace with God. For that matter, apart from God's grace, we have no peace with each other. Paul writes and begs that God might pour out His grace on the church in Philippi. That He would remind these saints, that He would remind these believers that their salvation hinges 100% solely, completely on God's grace in Christ. That Christ has come and paid the penalty for their sin and has granted to them, has credited to their account His righteousness that He earned through perfect sinless obedience. They need His grace. God's unmerited favor. It comes because it's not because of the things we do, not because of the things we say, not because of the the hurdles we clear, not because of the hoops we jump through, not because of the accolades that we call upon ourselves, not because of the offices or positions we hold in the church. It comes to us, it's unmerited favor. It comes to us only because God in His sovereign, loving will wants to pour it out on us. And when He does... We have peace with God. And only then can have peace with each other. This is a church, for all of Paul's joy in this letter, this is a church that needs peace. There's selfish ambition. There's rivalry. We find it in a couple of passages in this letter. This is a church that needs God's grace that it might have God's peace within its walls. Peace with God. Peace with each other come as a result of His grace at work in us and through us. Paul writes to remind these believers of the grace that they have in Christ. Did you notice the phrase? Every single sentence points us back to Jesus. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ. He writes to the saints in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the central figure in every phrase of these two verses and therefore every verse of this letter, and therefore every moment of our walk with Christ. Paul writes to remind them and to remind us of the grace that we have in Christ and the peace that we have with Christ and each other. Let me make just two applications from this passage. We want control. 
We want to be in control of our lives. We want to be in charge. We want to be the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own souls. And quite honestly, I wouldn't mind being the master and captain of your fate and your soul. I, sometimes we just would rather take on the, the authority and, and role and, and rule and reign over everybody around us. Don't we do that? Don't we? We, we want to be in charge. We want that, that role, that responsibility. You know, paralyzing that is? You know how overwhelming that is? That, to think that you have to be controlling every single thing about your life so that your life can go the way you want it to, which means you quite honestly need to be manipulating the people around you so that they will let your life go the way you want it. That is paralyzing. You'll never sleep. You can't possibly rest at night if you're that worried about controlling your own life. That's enslaving. Paul says that when we submit ourselves to Christ, we now have total and complete freedom. We rest our souls, we rest our fate in the hands of the one who is all-loving and all-powerful and all-wise. Which means you can sleep at night. You do realize there are two things that we do. There are two things that human beings do that prove we're not in charge. If you've ever, ever prayed in your life if you've ever prayed, you have admitted that you need someone else greater than you. If you've ever slept, if you've ever taken a nap, if you've ever slept eight hours through the night, oh, the day our kids do that, you've admitted you're not in charge. You're trusting someone else to rule and reign while you're not even paying attention. This passage says your greatest need is not more control. Your greatest need is not to, to grab the wheel a little stronger and steer it where you want to steer it. Your greatest need is not to grab on more tightly. Your greatest need is not to manipulate your spouse or your neighbor, or your kids, or your parents. Your greatest need is to run to Christ. Because only in Christ, only as servants of Christ Jesus, do we find peace and freedom. There's a second application of these two verses, and that is this. Those whom Christ saves... He also enslaves. Ooh, that sounds harsh. Wait, hold on, hold on. Say that again, because I'm not sure I like the way that sounds. Those whom Christ saves, He also enslaves. Those whom Christ calls to Himself, redeems from sin, those for whom Christ is Lord and Savior, those who put their 
trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for their own salvation, Christ not only saves us, but He also enslaves us. We become His servants in this world. We become His vice regents in the world around us. He rules and reigns over us. We submit to His rule and authority. He rules and reigns over us by His Word and by His Spirit. We, we seek to know and understand God's Word so that we might bring honor and glory to Him. His Spirit dwells in us to prick our conscience and drive us to understanding and deeper and greater love for Christ. This passage says that those whom Christ saves, He enslaves. Jesus rules over us, individually and corporately, by His Word and Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your work in our hearts and lives. We thank You that Our salvation is all of Your grace, that it depends solely and completely on You pouring out Your grace on us and drawing us to faith in Christ. Father, for those who might even be here this morning not trusting in You, would You you soften their hearts? Would You prick their conscience? Would You point them to their sin and then quickly remind them that Christ has come to pay the penalty for that sin and redeem them? And Father, oh, that You would rule in our hearts by Your Word and Spirit. That we would gladly, joyfully, even eagerly claim to be servants of Christ Jesus. That we would submit to His will and His rule in our lives. For our good and for His glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen.